Welcome to the podcast series, Animated Living, where we help you to live out the best version of you, the most animated version of you. I'm Ian Freestone, and I'm your host. Well, hey, everyone. It's my absolute privilege to welcome on episode six, uh, podcast Animated Living, Mr. Bernie Howard, who is an educator. He's a a syllabus writer for the New South Wales Department of Education. He's a rock historian and he is an avid lover of going to live music gigs, which is why I've got you on the podcast today, Bernie, because this show is all about animated living. And I believe one of the best ways that we can actually, one of the easiest ways that one can become animated uh, is to go and hear some live music. Uh, not only does it animate you at the time, but you have this sense of elation afterwards and the memory of having been to that gig lives with you for a long time to come, doesn't it? I oh, look, I couldn't agree more, Ian. Um, and that's the feeling from the first moment I went into the Sydney Stadium in uh, May 1967 and the Easy Beats were on their triumphant return home, you know, an Australian band that had gone overseas and succeeded. And, you know, there was Buddy England, Ronnie, Ronnie Burns, Larry's Rebels from New Zealand, The Twilights, and then The Easy Beats. And when I was doing one of my books, I went and interviewed the girl I went with. And I said, what are your memories of that night? Because I have these amazing memories of how great it was. Yeah. And, and they've stayed with me all that time. And she said, probably my strongest memory is you screaming the whole night. <laughs> and I have no recollection of that whatsoever. And yeah. there was, and it ties in with the Easy Beats because I was seeing, you know, my son Rowan and I had, we were convinced that Springsteen would do Friday on My Mind one show that we'd be at and see him do Friday on my mind. And I know he tried to do it in 2003 when he was out, couldn't get it right. And finally in 2014, we were at Kudos and he came on stage. Opening line was the guitar riff to Friday on my mind. And, you know, I said to Rowan, oh, this is it. Yeah, we were exultant. And he said, well, just stop screaming. <laughs> and I, again, I have no idea. Maybe it's Friday on my mind that does it to me. I have no <laughs> idea. But that exultant, when something like that happens at a live show, yeah. uh, it transcends normality. Yeah. That's all I can say. I have no recollection of screaming. Uh, I thought that was what girls did. Uh, but I've been accused on at least a couple of occasions at uh, the excitement of live gigs. How cool of him to come on stage and with that big nod to Aussie rock music from the get-go. Well, that was, and um, it was the first show on that 2014 World Tour. It was the first song that he put up himself on uh, on his video stream. Yeah. Um, he was so proud of it. There's a moment where he smiles across to Steve Van Zandt because they'd been trying to play it since they first heard it in 1967. And they just smile at each other because finally they'd nailed it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it took Tom Morello, Nils Lofgren, and Steve Van Zandt on guitars to get the sound for him, but uh, he nailed it. And it was just a supreme. And then he did it again in the Hunter Valley in the next gig. 
Yeah. And so I've seen the only two times Springsteen's ever done Friday on my mind, I was there to see it. Hey. That, that was you, exceptional. Maybe you spotted you. Uh, uh, look, Bernie and I go back a very, very long way because we're actually at the same school together. But I probably need to add that Bernie was my history teacher. And uh, everything I know about the Roman Empire, I've learned from Bernie. Every, anything I know about Demosthenes or the Persian Wars, uh, I think we did. Is it Hannibal, the guy who came from and over in Carthage. Africa? Yes, Carthage. Yeah, yeah. Over the Alps with his elephant. <laughs> and you, you had us all watching I Claudius, which was the best part of doing ancient history, I've got to say, going home and watching I Claudius at night. You have to, yeah, it's part of learning. <laughs> well, let's swap some stories. We've been to a couple of gigs together and yeah, we been. were going to be going to hear John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. Of course, COVID broke and uh, that was like a week or two weeks before John Mayle was due to come out and we had to get our refund from Ticket Tech. But their live music was basically put on hold and it's coming back slowly. I was down the South Coast recently and it was great to go to a little pub gig and, um, you know, just see people enjoying themselves and, you know, soaking up the whole vibe that live music brings. But what did we learn about live music after having had that length of absence? I found that a... I've just been writing all through COVID just to keep myself sane. Um, and I think the last two gigs I saw, I snuck in Graham Gouldman and 10CC at the Enmore and the last Elton John show with my son out at uh, Parramatta. Mm. Then everything collapsed. And I just was going through my diary, all these concerts I had lined up, you know, can't delete, delete, delete. And it was just like, as Janice said, you know, she's taking a little piece of my heart every time I hit the delete button on a on a concert. And I went to uh, see the Soul Movers, um, a Sydney band, Murray Kupf, who most would know from the Wiggles. Yeah. Uh, been a parent or a kid. Um, and Lizzie Mack have this fantastic soul band. And I'd interviewed Murray for a book. And they were doing a small gig to launch a single out at the Brass Monkey at uh, Cronulla. And the Brass Monkey's small enough at the best of times. And with social distancing, it's a very small room. And I just sat through this show with the Soul Movers and I just was so exhilarated. I went with a, a girl that I'd um, taught. She was one of my rock history students at Engadine. We hadn't seen each other for 30 years. And music made that connection. Mm. And we'd be saying, we'll have to go to a gig. We'll have to go to a gig. There were no gigs. Mm. Suddenly the soul movers were there. And for an hour and a half, I just felt alive again mm. after. I mean, I imagine that someone had been in a desert for days and suddenly was given a glass of water. Yeah. That's how it felt. I was My whole soul was being quenched. Yeah. I'm yeah. seeing, you know, and um, Lizzie Mack did this stunning version of Natural Woman. Uh-huh. Yeah, and she just channeled Aretha. Mm. And it was, yeah, oh, I've got goosebumps, there's tears forming in my eyes, and I thought, mm. this is what I'm born to do. I'm born to listen to music in that live setting. Mm. And actually the other, other gig I've seen was a couple of weeks ago when I saw the soul moves again at the Django Bar at Camelot at Sydenham. Mm. And they had Tony Mitchell from Sherbet come on and play the second half because Garth Porter from Sherbet's just produced their new album. And as a surprise treat, 
in this tiny little room. This they did "Summer Love," the Sherbet song with um, Tony Mitchell playing bass and singing backing vocals, and the whole room in a very COVID-safe way erupted. You're not supposed to sing or dance. So everybody was sitting there whispering at the height of their whisper, singing a love like no other love. And that connection between band, live music, memory, experience, it just coalesced in, you know, three minutes of glory. Yeah. And that's what live music can do. Mm. There's just an energy and it builds community, doesn't it? How many times have you been to a gig and you've come out and you've just caught someone's eye, perfect stranger, and you just look at each other and you just know that you've been in the same place tonight. You've shared something of each other's humanity. Yeah, every so often you're at a gig and you just have this realisation that there is nowhere else in the world for that three, five, seven, nine minutes if Bruce is doing Jungle Land. Um, there's nowhere else in the world on this entire planet that you could be at that moment that would be any better. Mm. And you'd catch someone's eye and you, that smile of shared recognition that for that moment you're in the best place possible on this planet. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a famous group. And it's varied. You know, it's been big-name bands. It's been small, local little bands I've seen. But that moment... Um, where you and you share it with some unknown person, as you said, and it's just that smile of recognition and sharing in the community that muse, live music brings to, to us, and that's what we need as a society. Yeah, without totally. those connections, um, mm. yeah, we're we're much the poorer for it. Now we really human if we yeah. don't have it. Mm. Yeah, I'm just interested in your thought on the Aussie music scene. It seems that we're we've come of age as a nation in terms of our cultural. You know, music heritage, particularly since the Easy Beats, um, you know, J- Johnny O'Keefe and others. And uh, I know you've done a lot of work and writing um, with Glenn A. Baker and a lot of thinking around our development culturally about music. Well, what are your reflections on where we're up to? Well, I think, you know, we have so much to be proud of. And one of the things with the um, getting an appreciation of popular culture and rock and roll, particularly into history curriculums was how much it's we take out and then give to the world and you know i like using an example i've i've got a couple of uh in the talks i give a couple of charts from 1966 and 67 because the the common perception is that oh we were swamped by america and england and you know that the 60s was all about that music but if you actually look at the charts What's fascinating is around about half of a lot of those charts, there's Australian acts who have taken that influence and made it Australian. And the Easy Beats are obviously, you know, with Friday on my mind going, you know, top 20 in England, right across Europe and the US in 66, 67. That's a huge achievement for Australian culture. Mm. And uh, it's interesting that Friday on my mind is one of the few non-Springsteen songs he mentions specifically in his autobiography. Um, so we were making that impact even that early, but you go through and, you know, I went and did some talks at the Hall of Fame in Cleveland and one of the guys I was working with there had been, he said, oh, you're from Australia. You know, I was 
I went on a tour of driving Jimmy Barnes's band around Europe, around Germany in you know, 1990-something, and someone else said, oh, Little River Band, I saw Little River Band, and you realise, oh, there was a band that supported the Kinks, the Angels. Yeah, we can um, probably claim the Bee Gees too, can we? Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, things get airbrushed. I mean, even when I saw Searching for Sugar Man mm. and, you know, it, that made it look like South Africa was the only people that remembered who Rodriguez was. Yeah. Yet he was huge. In, uh, I was teaching in the Shire. You were going to school in the Shire. And it was impossible to go anywhere in the second half of the 70s and go to any party and not hear Rodriguez on a turntable. Mm. And when I finally got to see him in, uh, you know, with Midnight Earl, mostly Midnight Earl musicians backing him up mm. as his backing band, um, at the end war, you realise there's a continuity there that he's never been lost to Australia. Mm. Um, and he understood that, that Australia mm. has been such a fertile ground. And that period, late 70s into the 80s, when we fashioned a, a, a circuit that bands could work on. I've just finished writing a case study on Paul Kelly and watching his emergence from, you know, a folk artist in Adelaide to the high-rise bombers in Melbourne to, you know, the, the Dots, the Coloured Girls, the Paul Kelly Band and his solo work and his collaborations. And one of the streams through that was the opportunity that Australians had to see him. And I remember seeing Sherbert at Grafton Basketball Court in <laughs> 1973 uh, because these bands went out and they played everywhere. Yeah, right. And you know, there were days before Countdown that you had to see them live. There were suburban circuits mm. and there was the pub circuit and the club circuit and all of those opportunities gave Australian bands that opportunity to be the best that they could. And they had to work hard to be good on the stage. And, you know, you'd go into any pub for about a 10-year period and it didn't matter who you were seeing, but they would be working and they would make you think that was the best night of your life. And, you know, that's why, I mean, just Stevie Wright is the classic example. You know, when the Stones came out first in 1965, they were, what's all this Easy Beats? And then they came out again in 66. Who's this Easy Beats? And Jagger watched Mick. Stevie Wright, and suddenly his life performance changes. Mm -hmm. Steve Marriott from the Small Faces was a huge Easy Beats fan, sings on backing vocals with them on Good Times. Um, and, you know, he drew on Stevie Wright's, you know, live performances. And, you know, when you're influencing British musicians of the like of Jagger and Marriott, mm -hmm. you're achieving something. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, the Angels... And Rose Tattoo got thrown off support gigs in America because they were showing up, you know, the, the other bands. Mm. And whenever people saw, you know, that's why Minute Work took off so big because by the time they got to actually go over, Mentors Anything were another one. By the time they got over and play support roles over in America, Americans are going, wow, why don't our people do this? <laughs> because yeah. that live circuit that we pretty mm. much lost these days mm. was the breeding ground for an amazing generation of performers who were distinctly Australian 
and channeled that passion and that hunger and that determination into a, a sound that was uniquely Australian. I think there are acts, and it's it varies. It can be as tough as you know ACDC. You know, it can be as subtle as Sebastian Hardy, but it's an Australian sound that captures space and experience and sunlight and spreads it, and it makes for a, you know, an amazing live experience. Mm. Um, I, I finally got overseas at the end of 1978 and got off a plane in Los Angeles, you know, on my way to, I was on my way to Panama, and... I picked up a Los Angeles Times and had these gig guide and Springsteen was playing San Francisco Winterland that night. That concert became legendary. And for another six years, I thought that was the closest I was ever going to get to Springsteen. I'd keep reading about these live shows. Finally, they had, you're allowed to buy two, you could buy 10 tickets max when he finally came out here in 85 and you could buy 10 tickets. He was doing five shows, so I bought two tickets to each night. I went every night. I was never more than about seven rows back. And, you know, in all the 22 times I've seen Springsteen and people go, why do you go back? I have never in any of those 22 shows, and I've got a list of every song I've ever seen him do, Mm. in every one of those 22 shows, I've never yet been to a show where he's repeated a song I've have, I've heard before. Mm. I've always heard a new song every time. And the last time I saw him in 2017 at the Hope Estate up in Hunter Valley, pouring with Wayne, Gadinsky had come out and warned everybody, you know, you turned it around, there was, you could just see the mayhem heading towards you. I was up the front in the mosh pit and it just poured lightning. They put everything back a while. Springsteen comes out, starts with Creedence Clearwater's Who'll Stop the Rain. So yeah. I always I thought, 22nd concert, surely I'll have heard every song he's going to do yeah. tonight. Yeah. First yeah. song, never heard him do before. I think he'd done four in the first seven that I had never heard him do live before. That's extraordinary. Um, and that across from 85 to 2017, all those concerts I've seen him here and in England, um, yeah, you know, and every single night is unique. Springsteen plays and he says to his band, you know, yeah, we may have done these shows before, but someone out there is seeing us for the first time. We've got to make it worth their while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's had me you know, have tears in my eyes. He's made me just sit down slumped at the end of it. Uh, he's made me go through all sorts of physical pain just to survive in crowds, to line up for tickets. Um, yeah, And every single blessed moment I have spent in the company of Bruce Springsteen has been worth every effort to make it happen mm. everywhere. Yeah. It's an extraordinary testimony of his... Uh generosity and his humanity and his understanding of what it is he does and how much it means to those that he shares it with. I think that's it. A, he shares it and he understands that, yeah, it's a communion. Mm. The other side of concert going is the endless hours you spend outside, you know, hotels or stage doors having to get an album signed. 
you know, on the famous Siebel Townhouse steps, you know, I had, you know, some great moments at the Siebel Townhouse. But the night I'd seen, or one of the nights I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers supporting Dylan. Um, and I still think they're the, that's the best I've ever seen Dylan because Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers really pushed him to produce a great show. And I saw him one night where Mark Knopfler came on mm. and played um, with him for a couple of songs. Another night that Stevie Nicks came on and mm. sang and uh, got into awful trouble because she had no visa to sing. Um, she found backing vocals. And I actually got a photo of her that night. And when she came out and toured, I said, oh, you know, I showed her this photo. Um, when one of my stage door dalliances and she said, Oh, can you get me a print? So I got a um, big eight by 10 for her. And the next time she came, um, she signed her album beautifully for me. You've got this, you know, really beautiful, but you know, that night I drove back to the townhouse, Siebel townhouse, and I was waiting for, you know, Dylan. I thought, Highway 61, Revisited, is one of the seminal albums of my musical education and coming of age. And I had Damn the Torpedoes because I adore Tom Petty, absolutely adore Tom Petty. And, you know, his first tour out here in 1980 at the Capitol Theatre is another story. But um, I waited and Tom Petty signed Damn the Torpedoes, which, you know, I treasure. And... Then I'm waiting, and I think I had a general studies class. And I don't know if you did um, general studies. Oh, but, I did. You know, it was, it's and, one anything, of those subjects. Anything where I could just write stuff, Bernie, that's what I chose. Yep. That's why I think I always got on well. <laughs> but I had a general studies class at Engadine the next morning, and it started at 7 because it didn't fit the timetable. And I had got till 3 a.m., waiting for Dylan to come back. And, yeah, you know, and most of that was me sitting in a car telling myself how stupid I am. What are you doing here? It's three o'clock. You've got to be teaching at seven. I thought I'm going to do one last lap around the back of the seat. Well, just in case, you know, no, nothing there. I'm driving down that street in King's Cross. I suddenly see the limo at Siebel Townhouse. Just pull the car up, going, leave the, it's still running. I've just got a pen and Highway 61. Bob Dylan is walking up the steps and I can, you know, the whole of my entire conversation with Bob Dylan is embedded forever in my memory, you know. Hi, Bob, great show tonight. Thanks, man. Would you mind uh, signing this for me? Sure. He signs Highway 61. I just came over the moon. He disappears. I'm walking back to the car, which is running in the middle of the road, three o'clock in the morning. The limo driver says, do you know how lucky you are? And I said, yeah, man, that's Bob Dylan. And he, he says, yeah, I've been driving him all week and I haven't seen him sign anything for anybody. Wow. So whatever the stars that were aligning that night, um, mm. I don't know. I have no memory of what how good the uh, general studies lesson was. Mm. but I have, you know, an intense memory of how good my conversation with Bob Dylan was. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Look, you've talked about a lot of people who've inspired you. 
uh, a lot of music that's inspired you. Uh, just as we're wrapping up, I want to thank you, Bernie Howitt, for inspiring me as uh, a teenager trying to find my way at Woolaware High School so long ago. It's just been uh, wonderful to now share a friendship, share, a, a, you know, a, that love of music. And um, I'm hoping we can do many more gigs together, especially in well, 2021. Keep, keep May in mind for Rolling Coastal Blackouts Fever. <laughs> okay. And can yeah. you please verify for anybody who may see or hear this that knew, knows me now that back then there actually was some black hair on my head? Yes, that's true. And yes, yes. Maybe not a lot, but there was no. some. Yeah, it's true. And it's true also that I had, you know, this sort of wavy beach blondie um, hair that I'd probably lost by age 30. So there you go, the vanity of hair. Yes, that's what once was. <laughs> All right. So thanks so much, Bernie. I look forward to sharing more music with you in 2021. And if you've been watching or listening on the podcast, um, well, if you've been listening, you can also watch this. If you want to see this fabulous hairstyle that Bernie is sporting right now, then jump across to myanimatedlife.com forward slash podcast and you can see it in all its glory. Uh, Bernie, thanks again for coming on and I hope we can catch up again soon. Oh, I look forward to it, Ian. Absolute pleasure.